Good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Glad you can join us this morning. Uh, we are excited to be here together. Um, we just sent some neat things happening uh, as a church, some neat things in our community right now. And, uh, and so we're excited to be here together. Thanks for joining us. Um, We've been studying through the, the book of Acts, and that's, uh, that's a follow-up to Luke's gospel. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote an account, um, the, the gospel of Luke is his story of Jesus' life, um, the, the ministry and the ways he worked, right? It's a story of Jesus um, helping and healing people. It's a story of his teachings. It's a story of him calling 12 apostles, his, his first disciples, and equipping them and training them and inviting them into the work that God was doing in the first century. And so we read, we, we went through Luke, and, and now we've been in the, in the book of Acts. And this is Luke's uh, second part to his story. As he tells the story after Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and, and is now, um, and now the, in the hands of the apostles is the beginning of and the future of this church. Of course, the journey is not their own, uh, nor is it accomplished by their power. Uh, as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit comes in power and equips and enables and remarkable things begin to happen in the first century. And so up through the, the six chapters that we've looked at so far in the, in the book of Luke, um, it, would, it would be quite easy to conclude, and even reasonable to conclude, that uh, the apostles had received the Holy Spirit, uh, and the Holy Spirit was doing powerful things through them, and, and they were the means by which this future church and community would be led, and, and things would be accomplished. However, today, as we're going to be in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, uh, we're going to see a, a first of the uh, many shifts in the story um, where we begin to see the Holy Spirit at work in ordinary people, where we begin to see just the everyday people, not just Jesus' 12 apostles, but everyday people uh, being empowered to do remarkable things. We'll begin to see a shift here in the book of Acts as uh, we look at Acts chapter 6. Verse 8 is where we'll begin today. Um, if you were here two weeks ago, uh, we were in the section just previous to this. So if you're looking at, at a Bible or something, you, you glance behind this. And it's the story of um, appointing seven uh, helpers to ensure that uh, food was being properly and equally distributed to the widows in, in the church at this time. And, um, and so we, we read through that and, and we identified that the seven men placed in this position, the, the Hellenistic Jews, these are the Jews um, from away uh, that, that had come back to Jerusalem. They're considered impure and tainted by Greek uh, religion and other cultures and things like this. They're not, you know, they're the marginalized of the Jewish people. Um, for, for some 600 years, uh, different nations have been conquering the land of Israel um, and, and, and taking off people as slaves. So, so Jewish people are scattered throughout the world at this point. Um, uh, Persia and Egypt and Babylon, um, you know, all, people have been, have been taken um, by means of war as slaves to other nations. Well, now, now these freed people are, are coming back to Jerusalem. But they speak Greek much more than they speak Hebrew, the, the Jewish language, right? And, and so these are the people on the outskirts. And these, these are the widows, remember, that a couple weeks ago we were talking about as, as they were saying, we're being treated differently than our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, than the, the, the other widows. 
Seven men were appointed. And, and what was interesting about the appointment of these seven men is they were all Hellenistic Jews. Uh, they were all Jews from the diaspora, from the surrounding areas. They were all Jews from the outside uh, that, that were chosen and, and given the task of taking care of all the widows, the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews. And so, so, so they, were, they were placed over it all. And one of them, his name was Stephen. So Stephen, is a, as, we, as we engage our story today, is a, newly equipped, uh, a man newly equipped with the task of caring for the orphan, or caring for the widows um, amongst the Jewish people, okay? So, so we engage our story today, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, let's, let's read there through the end of the chapter. Uh, now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freemen as it is called, uh, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the providences of Cilicia and Asia, who begin to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, uh, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, so here we are. Stephen um, has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do remarkable things. Not only is he now feeding um, widows here in the Israelite community, but he's out preaching and speaking and, and performing miraculous signs and helping and healing people. We begin to see just a glimpse right there of the character of Jesus in, in the way this ordinary man, this Jew outside the inner circle of Jewish, not the elites, uh, is beginning to take on the characteristics of Jesus, beginning to do the things that Jesus was doing while he was on earth. But, but opposition arises, as it always did in the stories of Jesus and, and his work, Opposition arises at this point uh, from the synagogue of the freedmen. And, uh, and, and so this synagogue was specifically the synagogue set up for Greek-speaking Jews that have come back. They've been freed from the slavery from away, right? And they've come back. And this is a synagogue that caters directly to, uh, to, to those people. It's probably low on the totem pole in the uh, religious organizations in, uh, in Jerusalem there because it, it's, it's for the Greek-speaking Jews. It's for those other ones, okay? Um, it's interesting to me that the opposition to Stephen comes from them, rather than from the elite synagogues and Jews there in Jerusalem. And I can't say exactly why that is. Um, uh, I can imagine maybe since he is also a Hellenistic Jew from the outsides who's come back, um, it's possible that this is his synagogue, and so they just hear the most of it, so they're the ones to respond. It's also possible that these Hellenistic Jews from outside uh, have come back, and and they, like, for so long— 
For, for generations, we have lived away, right? We've not been in Jerusalem. We've experienced a Judaism from the outskirts, right? And they say, we're back in Jerusalem, and so Judea, Judea, Israelite faith, it will be pure here in our synagogue. You know, it's possible that the, that the pendulum has swung, and they say, we insist on it being pure and right and perfect in our religious system here. For whatever reason, um, uh, they begin to dispute with, uh, with Stephen. Um, it's fascinating in verse 10, uh, but they could not stand up to um, stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. We're talking about synagogue le- leaders. We're, we're talking about rabbis who have memorized all of the Old Tes- Testament scriptures, right? They, they can quote the entire Old Testament uh, scripture to, to, ele- to rise to the positions that they're in. But no one could argue with the logic and the ability, the wisdom that Stephen had through the Spirit. So, what do they do? Well, they did the same thing they did to Jesus. They take him to a trial, they bring false witnesses, and they accuse him of a couple things specifically, uh, of, of speaking against Moses and against God and speaking against the holy place and against the law. They say, uh, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Okay? Now, now we're we begin to catch a glimpse here of, um, of, of a difference between Jesus and his followers, his disciples, and the religious system of the day. You see, they are clinging to what they've always known, what they've always believed, the traditions and the rituals that make Israel who it is. Well, Stephen comes with a different perspective. He's been gifted with power and abilities by the Holy Spirit. He has this new message about God, what God is doing through this man, Jesus, right? he's, he's, He's messing up this religious system that we've had and we've known so long. Their specific words are, He's going to change the customs of Moses. So we begin to catch this glimpse between the difference in religion and, and, and discipleship, or religion and followers of Jesus, right? We, we see this clash, and it's maybe not the first time you've seen this sort of a clash. I don't know, maybe you've been a part of a religious system that the traditions and the rituals seem to trump the meaning behind it. I, uh, yeah, so I see heads nodding, yes and no. Um, I, I have two water bottles with me here, here, um, because I was really thirsty. Um, no, it, it, it's because, uh, one water bottle is serving a very important function, right? They look the same, they're the same thing, except that one holds water. And, and it's life giving, and, and it's refreshing, and it is serving a purpose. Now, the other that's empty has ceased to serve a purpose. In fact, uh, it, it's not only purposeless, but it's potentially toxic uh, to the environment uh, should it not be dealt with properly. And I want to propose that, that we're seeing a similar uh, juxtaposition here in, in the text as we see an empty religious system that is potentially toxic and harmful as opposed to um, what, what Jesus is inviting people to realize, which is full of life-giving hope and potential for the world. Now, understand, uh, I don't say any of that to uh, call um, Judaism out as, as empty or wrong. Uh, the Jewish people are to be highly revered and, and deeply loved by God as they were the um, conduit of, of, of his story through history, through 
humanity. They were the conduit of, of, of Jesus being born into the world, the 12 apostles all from there. So I don't mean to, to, to say anything negative about Judaism, except in this synagogue and in others that were similar, in which religion had begun to trump the work of God. Do you hear the distinction? I don't mean anything critical about anything of the faith. What, what I mean to say is sometimes religion can begin to trump the work that God is trying to do. Sometimes religion can begin to stand in the way of what God is accomplishing, leaving it an empty vessel, traditions not tied to the root, to the core of, of, of what God is doing and inviting people into in the world. So here's what Stephen says to their complaints. Uh, they, 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 um, they say, you're going to mess up our customs. We like our religion. We like our customs and our traditions the way that they are. And Stephen goes on in the next chapter um, to tell the story of the Israelite people, to validate them as, as I attempted to do. Stephen's complaint, my complaint, the complaint is not against the Israelite people, um, but instead uh, a blindness to the work that God is doing through the Israelite people, the apostles, and Jesus. So he tells this story in, in uh, chapter 7, and we're not going to read it all today. It's, it's incredibly long. Um, uh, next week, we're going we're gonna to try to do justice to that story, but I'll just summarize it because it's important for the flow of, of, Peter's, or of, of Stephen's experience here. Um, so, so he's going to say to the people, uh, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. God came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you a land. Abraham was faithfully trusted in God and he acted on God's word. Um, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob was the father of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. So out of, out of Jacob would be the, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes, Stephen is going to tell us, uh, was a man uh, named Joseph, one of, the, one of the sons who became one of the tribes of Israel. His name was Joseph, and his brothers were really jealous of his really cool coat. You might remember that story, right? They got really jealous, and so, so they threw him in a pit, and they sold him as slaves, actually because their father kind of favored him. Um, so they sold him as a slave. He finds himself in Egypt. Uh, soon there's a famine in the land. This is, this is Stephen's story of Israel, and we'll look at it all in, in more detail next week. But uh, there's a famine in the land, and so uh, Joseph's brothers, who sold him into sa- slavery, come to Egypt to receive their portions of food. Well, Joseph has risen to uh, the highest position in all of Egypt, aside from the Pharaoh himself. And, uh, and, and so uh, in, in time, uh, Joseph's brothers and, and family, the Israelite people, uh, they move to Egypt, where Joseph is able to give them prominent position and, and opportunity to survive the famine. Years later, you might remember, um, uh, a Pharaoh uh, comes into power fearful of the numerous Israelite people. They flourish in Egypt. And so for 400 years, the Israelite people are enslaved in Egypt. But God's story hasn't ended there. God continues to work through these people that he made a promise to in their darkest hour after 400 years. He sends a man named Moses. And Moses comes and Moses uh, leads his people out of Egypt and to the promised land where eventually his successor, um, uh, Joshua, uh, leads the people in. They conquer the promised land. And now after all this time, God's promise to this man, Abraham, has been fulfilled. In time, they elect King David, who's a great king, wrote many of the Psalms that we love and, and read. They elect a king. Uh, his son, Solomon, is the one to build the temple, the place that God would dwell amongst the Israelite people. Okay, so that's, that's him affirming the Israelite story. God is working through this nation. 
Um, and then he says this in his, in his speech in chapter 7. Uh, he says, but to think that God could be confined within something built by human hands is ridiculous. He says, you are a stiff-necked people. You have, you have um, uh, fought against and killed all of the prophets God has sinned to tell you about his redemptive work, and now you've done that very thing to the Messiah who has walked amongst you. So that's Stephen's story. He says, hey, God is not against the Israelite people. In fact, he has worked faithfully, faithfully, faithfully through these people. But you, like your forefathers, have killed the very prophet, in this case, the Messiah, who has come for your sake. All right, so here's what happens. Uh, he, he knows. I mean, he's got to know what he's getting himself into. Uh, chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. I, I mean, uh, grown men reduced to childlike behavior. Have you ever seen a little kid growl at you because they're angry and they just don't know what else to do? Yeah, little kids do that. But grown men, right, gnashing their teeth at him. Uh, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God Looking, uh, looking, he said, see, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, knowing what's about to happen, knowing that he is on trial uh, with, with people lying about him, he's, he's looking up to heaven and receiving a vision and saying, how beautiful is it? Look at where Jesus is. Isn't that, isn't that just beautiful? Isn't that perfect to the very people that are trying him for his claims about Jesus and the fact that he would change it? But Stephen, so overwhelmed by the vision of Jesus, is unafraid of the circumstances he faces, and the story gets very dark. Um, at this, they covered their ears, and they yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed him. They dragged him out of the city, and they, be, they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll read Saul's story in a few weeks. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. These men, can you imagine uh, this scene? They go from gnashing their teeth to literally covering, covering their ears and yelling to ensure they could not hear the words of Jesus right, the words about Jesus, covering their ears and screaming as they rush towards him. They drag him out of town and they kill him in an unbelievably brutal way that I won't go into the details of, but, but throw stones on his head until he's dead, right? And it's a, it's a tragic story. Like, why does a story end like that when a man is so faithful, so empowered by the Spirit, so in tune with what God is doing in the world around him. Have you ever been in one of those seasons of life in, in which it goes from darkness to even darker, right? A man on trial loses his life for the good. And so Stephen is the first recorded martyr in, in the church, a man who died for his faith. But we see in Stephen's character uh, some remarkable things. Uh, again, much like the story of Jesus, he's crucified for, the, for doing the work of God. Uh, Jesus was Stephen Stone for doing the work of God. But even as he's dying, he's seeing visions of God and connected to him. He's, uh, he's praying for the very people taking his life. 
Lord, don't hold this sin against them. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, um, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? And so we see in Stephen uh, this remarkable ability to see God even in the turmoil and difficult moments in life, to realize God's mission and calling even when it's not our prefer- his preferred future, right? And, and in, our, in, in an interesting way, it is his preferred future. He believes so deeply in Jesus who rose from the dead that he knows his future is preferred. That the resurrection is his as well, that hope beyond this moment and experience in this life is his and is good. And so I ask myself, what is so, what is so powerful that a man would willingly lose his life in this text? That, that he would, that he would peacefully go to his grave? What, what is so powerful and so amazing? I ask myself, well, could it be, could it be the truth? That he knew. And and I want to push beyond truth as just like knowledge, not just like something he knew. It's not that he knew Jesus rose from the dead, but but truth speaks to something different. Jesus said of truth, he said, when you know the truth, it'll set you free. That's that's what Jesus said about truth. A truth that is so uh, universal and deep-seated in just the nature of the world and the work that God is doing, something so deep-seated in his life that he can see beyond the circumstances and and, and the threats and even the the imminent future that that he will lose his life. A truth so deep-seated that it surpasses all that he is experiencing, that it it frees him from that moment, from that reality, knowing that there is a reality beyond it. If Jesus rose from the dead, like Stephen had the benefit of of being within a generation of Jesus' life, like he knew people that that walked with Jesus, he he knew people that, that saw Jesus risen, right? And so he had this deep-seated faith and hope in this truth that Jesus is alive and he is my hope. And I, and I ask myself, what would it mean if, if you and I had this kind of deep-seated hope, like this abiding trust in the fact that Jesus has risen and I have hope beyond this moment and these circumstances, right? This is, this is the crux. This is at the core of Christian faith. It is this question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is he the Messiah? Is he my hope? And we see in the story of Stephen what happens to a man uh, or, or a woman when, when we come to realize that, that Jesus is alive. It changes our perspective. It changes the way we perceive the momentary things of this life. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we think. It changes our hope after death. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, it has incredible impacts. And so I ask myself, what, let's, say, let's say this morning, like some of us have this, have this revelation and say, I truly I truly believe this. Maybe we said it before. Maybe some of us for the first time are just really considering, do I believe in Jesus, in who he claimed to be? Do I believe in the story of the resurrection? And ask, so what happens when we, when we, when we make that step in life? Well, in the story of Stephen, it was this. He began to take on the characteristics of Jesus. God did a transformative work in his life that he would speak like Jesus spoke 
that he would care for widows like Jesus cared for widows and outcast people. Jesus began to live life like his Messiah and his Savior, and it transformed everything in him. You know, we talk about, as a church, um, uh, oh, <laughs> we, got, we got both of these signs. Belong, believe, become. We talk about uh, this is like a core value. And, and so often we spend our time talking on that first point of a place of belonging. And, and praise God that, that I, think, I think we're seeing the fruits of that, like the diversity and the relationships that exist in this room uh, speak of, of um, a place of belonging. But how, how do you move beyond that? right? There comes that moment of belief, and that's what we're talking about today, that moment of faith in which we say, yes, I believe it. Belong, believe, and then, and then become. And that speaks to God's transformative work in our lives, that as I put my hope in Jesus, as I find salvation, not just a salvation far off, but a salvation that has come to earth, that is here and now, Jesus transforms us. We become new. We begin to, to live lives of purpose as Jesus would live in this world. And so what does that look like? We fight for the causes of Jesus. Social, social justice mattered deeply to Jesus, right? Uh, he, he cared for the least of people. Sitting in a Pharisee's home, he would make room at a table for a prostitute to wash his feet and to worship what God is doing, right? I mean, like, like Jesus cared deeply for hurting people. We'd, we'd tell people about him. And we live in a culture in which we are increasingly considered intolerant if we speak of any sort of truth that is universal, right? And I get that. So we got to learn to speak sensitively. But if we are being transformed by Jesus, we're sharing with people the hope that we have come to know, right? Unashamedly saying, Jesus has transformed my life and he's given me hope. And I would love for you to know that hope as well. So we're living lives like him. We're telling people about him. And, and, and I was struggling with this idea this week. Does our level of conviction as to the character of Jesus, is our, does the extent to which I am convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, um, does it define for us the difference in religious experience or faith, pursuit of Jesus, a life lived for him? Right? Because I can, I can go through the, the Sunday services and I, and I can, you know, even pray occasionally or read my Bible, but they'd be kind of an empty shell of, of, of faith, right? With, with nothing to it that in fact might be a detriment to my really coming to know Jesus, as opposed to uh, a, a deep conviction and a faith that says, my hope is in Jesus, and experiencing that transformative work that he can do in our lives where we, where we be filled with his Holy Spirit and we live lives of new purpose and new direction and new meaning. You know, as a church, we've been um, talking about the gifts of the Spirit in the new year and we've been encouraging each week for us to consider a new gift of the Spirit. And so we've been through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness was last week. And in the week to come, it just happens to be faithfulness or faith. A fullness of faith in our lives that transforms the way we think and the way we act and the hope that we have, right? And so I want to, I want to invite us this morning to consider a deep and abiding faith that is both our choice, that is both our decision, I believe in this and I will live in this, and is also a gift of the Spirit. Like an invitation to the Spirit to say, produce more faith in my life. There's a story of a man who wants Jesus to heal his child. 
Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my belief. And I think that's a story of faith and faithfulness. Faith is a decision on our part to follow Jesus, but it's also a work of the Spirit in which we are given a fullness of faith that transforms our lives. So I want to ask you this. Where are you at in your faith journey? I want to conclude just with these questions that we're each reflecting. Like, have I come to a point in my life where I am convinced that Jesus is my hope? and it's the hope of the world. If so, I want to invite us to consider next steps in our faith journey. I want to consider um, baptism. I want to consider transformed lives. I want to consider what does it look like to live as Jesus lived on this earth? Is today the day that the Spirit is blessing you with a new measure of faith? And if so, what's God inviting you to do? What's he he inviting you to take on? What's he inviting you to give up in your life? Like, Who are you invited to in your workplace or in your family, right? What's God doing through this transformative work of faith in your life today? Those are the questions we want to ask. You know, there's been some beautiful things happening in our church recently. Uh, The Rohner family uh, brought today uh, two foster kids, uh, two two little babies that that they're looking after. And that that is an act of faith in God's transformative work that we would choose to make decisions like that. We have families signing up to work with World Relief. Not long ago, the Bush family adopted mainly from China, right? Uh, We have volunteers at Soul Soup feeding meals to homeless people. These are the acts of faith, right? These These are the fullness of faith that compels us to love as God loves, to live as Jesus lived. I want to invite you to consider today where you're at on your faith journey. I want to continue, invite you to consider a next step in which I say I believe in Jesus and I, and I invite his transformative work in my life.